ahead and get started. Welcome, welcome. Glad that you are here um, this morning with us. Um, I was born in 1969, um, which puts me squarely at the front end of Generation X. Gen Xers are, were born between 1965 and 1980. Any other Gen X? In the, okay, all right. We're, we're small, but a powerful lobby. Um, early on, we were called the latchkey generation. We were the first generation whose parents both worked outside the home, and so we all had house keys to let ourselves in after school. And we came of age during the fall of the Iron Curtain and the rise of cable television. Um, so Gen X has also been called the MTV generation. And in fact, if you know who Kurt Loder is, you're probably in Generation X. Who knows who Kurt Loder is? Who was he? NTV News, right? He was the correspondent, the culture guy. So in terms of religion or faith and culture, Gen X worked really hard to try to erase the divide between um, sacred and secular in the culture. For a long time, the word secular was a powerful signifier, meaning non-sacred, non-Christian, non-holy or unholy, right? And, and, and therefore possibly dangerous to us. And so for those of us who grew up in the church, secular often meant off limits. Like, there, I don't know how many times in youth group or in church camp or wherever I heard talks about the evils of rock and roll and how the emphasis on beats two and four was like too sexual for us and um, certain kinds of movies and entertainment were after our soul. And, and so most secular art form, forms were seen as dangerous temptations. And so, of course, all we wanted was our MTV. Um, and Gen X really became devoted consumers of popular culture, which meant we had to fight our parents and our pastors and our youth pastors for access to pop culture. And part of how we pulled this off was to sort of deconstruct the separation between the sacred and the secular. So we mined U2 songs for spiritual themes. We searched for God in movies and television. Gen Xers actually invented the genre of the independent film, which often crashes the sacred and profane into one another to see what happens. But part of how this boundary was attacked was to bring the sacred down a notch or two by taking a sort of a posture of irreverence toward the sacred to demystify it a bit and, and break the power that it held over our lives. So Gen X took a pretty irreverent tone toward the sacred, even toward church and God. It didn't help that we came of age during the, the televangelist scandals, Jimmy Swagger, the Bakers, all that stuff. It kind of fueled this irreverence toward sacred things. And then came millennials. Millennials came of age during like the scandals, uh, sex abuse scandals in the Catholic church which has dominated much of the public imagination about sacred things. Um, but also, you know, the patriarchy of the church, discrimination in the church, the politicization of the evangelical church. And so really for decades now, there's, this been, there's been this posture of irreverence toward the authority of institutions in, in general, but especially toward religion. And this has just become the norm. And of course, some of that is good, um, but the danger, I think, of irreverence is once it gets going, it, it, um, it can't be contained. It can, it can burn out of control. 
and, and irreverence for one thing can quickly turn into irreverence for many, if not everything. And so one of my pet projects over, over the years I've been a pastor is to try to hold reverence up and, um, and keep it before us and keep us thinking about it and chasing it and talking about it. Because I think it's possible that if, if we lose the ability to find a place of reverence inside us um, for God, for the self, for each other and, and the world around us, then I think we lose something essential about what it means to be human. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about reverence and see if we can't um, learn a little bit about what it is and how it works, why it's important for us, and how to foster a sense of reverence in our own lives. And where I want to start today is with a story about reverence that you might not think of as a story about reverence, but I, I think it actually is. It begins just southeast of the city of Rome in Italy, about 100 miles, in a little town called Rosetto Valfatore. It's this quaint little medieval Italian hill town set on the crest of a hill in the country, has these, the, the narrow European medieval, medieval streets, a, a city wall. Um, everything in the place is made out of stone, so it lasts forever. And the life of the town revolved around the marble quarries where almost everybody worked, either in the quarries or out in, in the terraced fields surrounding their town. And it was a hard life, and they often struggled. And so in the late 1800s, the people of Rosetto Falfatore began um, to hear about this uh, land of opportunity called America, where life was better. And in 1882, a group of, a group of 11 Rosettans, they sometimes called themselves Rosatani, which is a great name, um, they set sail for New York City. And when they arrived, they just kept going west and made their way to Pennsylvania, where they found a bunch of new slate quarries just opening up. They knew a little bit about mining. And so they went to work um, in, in these slate quarries using their, you know, they had been marble miners for centuries. And so they went to work and sent word back to their family. And over the next few decades, more than 1,200 Rosettans from the, the Italian village transplanted themselves from the hill country of, and the marble mines of Italy to the hill country and the slate mines of Pennsylvania. And they started buying up land on this rocky hillside near the mines, and they established a little village that they named Rosetto after their hometown, Rosetto, Pennsylvania. And since they'd come from this kind of medieval village, they built the new town in that same medieval style. These two-story two houses built way too close together, right on top of each other. They made the streets really narrow, running up and down the hillsides. They cleared land around the, the, the town and grew crops, especially wine grapes, and small shops and bakeries and, and um, little restaurants and bars sprang up. Little factories in people's homes where they would sew shirts and blouses. And they built a busy main street and started doing businesses and opening businesses t together. They opened a school and a park and a convent and a cemetery. They built a Catholic church that looked like the one back home. And they named it Our Lady of Mount Carmel after the street on which it was built. And they celebrated the same religious festivals that they did back in the old country. And, and everybody who lived in this little town in Pennsylvania came from that same little town in Italy, Rosetta Valfatori. Now, this is where I think it gets interesting. This doctor by the name of Stuart Wolf, who taught at the med school at University of Oklahoma, 
spent his summers near this little town in Pennsylvania, became friends with this local doctor, a general practitioner, and they would go have beers and swap stories. And this local doctor told this man, Dr. Wolf, something unbelievable. He said that he treated people, people from all over this region. All the little small towns were basically the same, except for one town, this little place called Rosetto. And he said in all of his years of practice, hardly anyone from Rosetto under the age of 65 had ever shown up in his office with any form of heart disease. It just didn't happen. This is the late 1950s. Like, everybody had heart disease. Um, there was no medicine yet for high cholesterol or high blood pressure. Plus, everybody smoked cigarettes all the time. Heart disease was rampant in America, by far the leading cause of death in men under the age of 65, and the biggest health risk in every area, including that one. It, it was impossible to find a family doctor anywhere who did not see patients under the, the age of 65 with heart disease. But he swore it. He never saw anybody from this little town of Rosetto. And so Dr. Wolf, he decided to, to investigate. He funded this study through OU, um, through their med school. And they, they came and gathered death certificates and did genealogies. They analyzed medical records just as far back as they could find them. And a bunch of the, the, the Rosettans um, got really into it. A bunch of the town people started helping him with his research. And the citizens came and donated blood and did EKGs and gave family histories um, to the researchers. And um, nearly everybody in the entire, the, the whole population took part in, in this study. And the results were kind of hard to believe. Virtually nobody under the age of 50 had ever died of a heart attack. And no one under the age of 50 had even showed any sign of heart disease. And for men over 65, the death rate um, for, from heart disease was um, about half that of the rest of the entire population. population. The overall death rate was 35% lower than the population at large. Dr. Wolf wrote at the time, there was no suicide no alcoholism, no drug addiction, and very little crime. They didn't have anyone on welfare. These people were dying of old age. That's it. And, and he, was, he was hooked. He had to figure out why. If they brought some practices over from the old country, was it their, their diet? Maybe it was genetics. Maybe it was all the red wine that they were drinking all the time. But when he looked into their diet, he didn't find what he expected. He found that when they came over to the new world, they immediately stopped cooking with olive oil like they did back there and began cooking with lard, which is not nearly as heart healthy, apparently. <laughs> and compared to their old life, they ate more red meat and more sausage and salami and ham and eggs and drank whole milk. They ate more sweets than they used to. In fact, Wolf determined that 41% of the Rosettans' diet, their calories, came from fat, which was high, um, even back then. And yet, from roughly the, the, the period they were studying, from um, 1954 to 1961, Rosetto had almost no heart attacks in men under the age of 65. And so we thought, okay, well, Maybe it's not, clearly not diet. Maybe there are other factories, may, factors. Maybe it was um, lifestyle. But he learned that basically these people never exercised. They smoked heavily, all of them, and they, almost all of them were overweight. And so he thought, well, then it's, they're all from the same place. Maybe it's genetic. Um, but when he studied the Rosettans who 
immigrated at the same time but settled elsewhere in the country, they didn't see the same effect. And so it's like, well, maybe it's something geographical about the region. But then they studied nearby towns full of immigrants, hardworking, kind of similar stories. Their numbers weren't the same. And so in the end, what their research concluded was the secret to Rosetto's good health wasn't diet, exercise, genetics, location, or even the wine. It was the town itself. It was about how the people stopped to chat in the middle of the street and then stood for hours talking. How they lived close together, like all in each other's business, and ate meals together constantly. How most homes had two or three generations living together, and especially how grandparents commanded a great deal of reverence and respect. Something to live for, you could say. And the church was a huge part of this. They all went to mass together. This had this unifying and calming effect on them. They counted 22 separate civic organizations in a town of 2,000 people. They noticed a, a very egalitarian social and economic structure in the town. The wealthy didn't flaunt their success, and, and those who were struggling were allowed to kind of obscure their success and were helped. One sociologist who helped study the town wrote this. Um, I remember going to Rosetto for the first time, and you'd see three generational family meals, all the bakeries, the people walking up and down the street, sitting on their porches, talking to each other, the blouse mills where the women worked during the day, visiting, talking, and the, the, while the men worked in the slate quarries, visiting and talking. It was magical, they wrote. And so when their research was, was completed, what they knew was Rosettans were healthier, actually, living longer and experiencing this phenomenal resistance to heart disease, the number one public health problem of the time. And the only difference between them and the rest of the culture was that they lived in this close-knit community together in which everyone belonged and in which the elderly especially enjoyed a deep sense of reverence and respect. They, the researchers actually gave it a name. It still has a name. It's called, it's known as the Rosetto Effect. This impact lowering heart disease when you're embedded in this kind of community. These people were doing almost everything wrong. They were two back-a-day smokers, these guys, who ate bacon at every meal and then washed it down with either whole milk or red wine. They were all overweight. They were eating dessert three times a day. But while the rest of the culture was dropping dead of heart disease, these Rosettans were dying of old age. And the only difference between them and everyone else was in Rosetto, nobody was lonely. Everyone belonged. And there was this tangible sense of reverence for each other, especially for those who were not yet or no longer in their years of peak productivity, a reverence for the elderly and for the very young. I love this story because I think it's a real-life illustration of one of the central ways in which God has designed us to learn reverence, which is that we first learn reverence through our relationships with other people. When we embed ourselves in relationships that help us see the image of God in others and have the image of God in ourselves reflected back to us, this fosters a sense of reverence with, for what it means to be human 
And, and this begins our training in how to have reverence for God and the world around us and even ourselves. And just like with irreverence, reverence for one thing has this tendency to spread to reverence for other things. In Mark chapter 9, there's this scene from late in Jesus' ministry that we read earlier. Jesus has been teaching for a while. Crowds were pursuing him because he's healing people. And um, also the authorities were out to get him. And, and he just wanted to go home to Capernaum. And he must have been pushing the pace on the road because his disciples were lagging behind far enough that he couldn't really hear what they were talking about, but he knew they were fighting. And so when they got to Capernaum, he asked, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. Must be Americans, these guys. Um, He sat down, called the 12, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all, and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. In our day, we have kind of a romantic and sentimentalized view of children, like childhood in our culture um, is seen as sort of a privileged time of Innocence, And we often import that view of children into the text, but it was not like that in the ancient world. One commentary I read said, the child in antiquity was a non-person. Even in first century Judaism, children were regarded as inferior, like without any status or rights in society, treated really more as property than as persons, and weren't held up as a model for anything. Until they could, you know, work and and do some peak productivity stuff. They were just a drain on the household economy. They carried disease. They were vulnerable. They were, you know, marrying off daughters cost you money. And sons often instituted like squabbles and divided the family over leadership or wealth. And, And these children were, they should have been with the women who also, by the way, didn't have much status in the ancient world. It should have been off of them not bothering this important teacher. And so what Jesus does here is, frankly, shocking in a, back then in a way that it's not to us today. Reaches for the person in the group who's the least likely to receive any attention. This little smelly, dirty rug rat. The last one you point to as important and says, unless you can hold a deep reverence for this, you know, smelly little child... Um, You don't get what I'm doing. And this, of course, was a constant refrain in his teaching. He would always pair himself with every outcast in ancient society and demonstrate this deep sense of reverence for them, for the person everyone else hated or would at least ignore. And he told them plainly, whoever welcomes this little outcast in my name welcomes me, not just me, but welcomes God. And it was this kind of symbolic, prophetic act of reverence for a child, a non-factor, a non-person in their world. And and this is one of the most common themes of his teaching and actions in his life, this reverence for other human beings, especially those everybody else is tempted to leave out and reject and ignore or objectify in some way. And, and, And he seemed to believe that reverence for them 
leads to reverence to God. And without reverence for them, there's no reverence for God. They are somehow linked for Jesus. And you know how we let ourselves get away with mistreating people in life, just in general. It's almost impossible to let ourselves get away with mistreating someone if we feel a sense of reverence for them. We want to get, get away with mistreating somebody. The first thing you have to jettison is reverence. One of the most um, famous explorations of this in, in history of theology and, and philosophy was written by this Austrian philosopher, a theologian um, named Martin Buber. And he wrote in 1923 this famous book called I and Thou. Has anybody ever had to read I and Thou? This, I mean, this is a really big book. It's short, too, if you want to read it. Um, he was looking for the effects of kind of enlightenment and modernity on the way human beings were treating one another. And he wrote this as an Austrian Jew in 1923, so kind of on the heels of World War I, and sort of predicting what he thought could happen if they didn't get a handle on human relationships in Europe, and essentially warning them, or warning them about this slow rise of a massive divide in German culture that culminated, we know, he didn't at the time, but we know now, in, in the Holocaust, World War II. And he said any kind of violence um, or any mistreatment of other human beings depended on what is sometimes rendered in English, he wrote in, in German, that what's rendered sometimes as thingification, which is a great word, thingification. He said, as soon as you stop seeing someone as a, a person, you, you're, you've thingified them. So, so you take a person who is not a thing, but is a who, you stop treating them as a who and treat them as a thing, and, and then you've done this thingification. And, and then you can mistreat them. And his argument was interesting. It's I and thou is the name of the book. So he said there are really two fundamental approaches or ways of relating to other human beings. One is I, thou, and thou is a term of kind of endearment. So he, he says it, the I, thou relationship says I am, I'm a person and I see you in the same way. You are a person and imbued with dignity and worthy of my reverence. Or we can have an I-it relationship. That kind of posture toward the other that says, I get to be whole and, and complex, you know, good and bad, living within me both, and, and, but still dignified and worthy of reverence. But you or your group, you're just an it and worthy of this label that I give you or this category, this objectification of you. You're just a thing. It's thingification. So you're not fully human in the way that I am. Therefore, I don't have to hold you or your group with reverence. Buber said that, that people have actually a remarkable capacity to like sharply disagree about vital things and still live in community and harmony without you know, killing or destroying each other, but only if we have reverence for the image of God in the other. O only if we can relate in an I-thou relationship, not an I-it kind of thing. And, and for, uh, you know, people, we, we just see ourselves as having good intentions, you know, always. We, we, we have, of course, feelings and desires and hopes and dreams, and, and, and we have failures and struggles and we, we kind of want to keep 
those things hidden, our, our shames, our insecurities, our, our fears, and our failings. We like to keep those things hidden, especially from ourselves. But other human beings have this tendency to reflect those things back to us when we're in relationship with them. And so the, the struggles that we encounter in most of our relationships, when we struggle in relating to one another, they often stem from the way that um, our relationships expose to us our own frail, our frailty, our brokenness, our shames, our insecurities. They, they reflect those things back to us, and we don't want to see those things. And so how we deal with this very often is we diminish their humanity, the humanity of the other we're relating to. And then we can sort of escape exposure to our own, you know, jacked up life. And part of how we do this is, is we treat anyone with the potential to expose our own brokenness. We treat him as a thing instead of a person. Brewer was writing this in 1923. It's pretty stunning. I mean, he could not have predicted that the thingification of people would culminate in Europe in, in the Holocaust. But he could see it already, how the Third Reich began their rise to power with this hidden evil embedded in their public rhetoric, which was catching hold at the time. It was dehumanizing, to, especially to Jews and other minorities. And it wasn't just crazy people like, like Hitler. This was ordinary German people, most of them German Lutherans, good Christians, who would never think about murdering somebody or exterminating a whole race of people. And, and so what the Nazis did is they just spent years training people to see the Jews not as persons, but as objects, as things, right? Not as other human beings worthy of reverence, but as objects that could be discarded mistreated. And for us, you know, I mean, you don't have to think about this on like the scale of epic world history. The way we thingify others is how we just sort of let the thought take root in our minds that others are not worthy of our attention, that their differentness from us is, is a real problem, not for us, but for them. That those who think differently can actually be discarded. Their opinions aren't valued. They're, they can be diminished in our minds or, or just blown off, especially if what they do in relating is reflect back to us our own brokenness. You know, we despise in others only what we despise in ourselves and we don't want to see. And we live in a world now of, you know, the Facebook fight and 24-hour cable news and, you know, God knows how else everybody's getting their information it's, it's kind of poisoning the culture with thingifying language, like those liberals or those you know, evangelicals or whatever group we mean to thingify. And these groups are, I mean, surely we can admit, <laughs> engaged in a highly dysfunctional conversation along the road of who is the greatest, you know? And instead of seeing each other as human persons, wildly complex, broken, and yet beautiful, unique, and, and confused, and generally hurting, yet bearing the image of God 
and therefore worthy of reverence. We're taught instead to, to group people into categories, like real Americans, or I don't know what, even what the opposite of that is. And then treat them not as people, but as things. And once we, we've done this, Buber says, and history bears out, it's pretty easy to begin to attack them and mistreat them. And it all comes back to this loss of just a basic sense of reverence for the other, for other human people. And so, and we miss out on what a gift it is to, you know, have our own humanity, the good parts and the bad, reflected back to us. Anytime we start to thinkify others, despise them, attempt to control them, manipulate them, discard them, it's probably because they've reflected back our own brokenness to us in some essential way. And we don't want to see it. We don't want to see it. And I'm not saying you, I'm saying me, we much less have to have reverence for them while they do it, you know. When you think about the animosity toward immigrants in, in our culture today, this is, this is top of mind for a lot of us as we live in this, this neighborhood. Most of the reason for this is that there are whole groups of people in our society who are wondering if there's a place for them in the future. Of course they're wondering this. And so the, the immigrant reflects that back to them, and it makes them crazy. It would make me crazy, too. And so they objectify them and find a way to try to dismiss them, and it's not that far to, you know, horses whipping Haitian immigrants on the border. I mean, come on. Can't we see this is what is happening? And Christ's way, his, his genius in his teaching in that moment is to plop down this little ragamuffin kid and say, it, you have to have reverence for the things that you're tempted to discard and despise. He says, if you can't have reverence for this little child who can do nothing for you and is just a drain on your economy, then you'll never know how to have reverence for God. Just this child's being, this child's existence is enough. It's enough to be worthy of our reverence. In, in much of the world, the common greeting isn't like it is here where we say hello, you know, hi, salutations. In much of the world, um, when they greet, what they do is clasp their hands and, and put it to their forehead, and then they say namaste. That's how they greet, namaste. And this, this author named Robert Benson um, we studied uh, one of his books a few years ago. He says that what that practice means is, when they're doing this, they're saying, the part of the living God that lives and breathes in me bows in reverence before the part of the living God that lives and breathes in you. That's what they do. That's what they mean when they say namaste. And, and Benson argues this is a deeply Christian idea. This awareness that God takes up rev re um, residence in human hearts. And th the presence of God is always in the other and demands our reverence, demands that we recognize it just upon meeting. It's the hello. Namaste is this, this practice of reverence in the meeting of all other human beings. I think this is, this is a deep wisdom. 
Kristen and I taught this to our boys when they were young. So we taught them. Um, our, our practice was every time they were getting out of the bathtub, we would wrap the towel around them, and then they would, they would go like this, and we would bow to each other and go, namaste, <laughs> namaste. That was our practice, right? And um, there, there were times when I was just sure this was working. Like, oh, man, I'm building the soul of my little children, see, treat, teaching them to see other people as precious and human. But I also noticed that in those times when bath time morphed into let's see how far we can push dad until he snaps time, which was a thing. Um, <laughs> and, and I lost my temper and would treat them with, let's just say, a lack of reverence in that moment. That they went all wet and soaking and flustered and angry. They jumped out of the bath. Bath had to put a towel around them and had to say it and mean it. Namaste. And the tension, man, it was poignant at times. And it really kind of, I think, in a way, backed up on me. I think it changed the way I interacted with my kids, even to this day. Not just in the bath time, but in other areas of life. Hopefully, in ways that were good and will bear good fruit. And so I just want to leave that practice of reverence with you today. The namaste. That practice of just reverence for the other. Let me read Robert Benson's words again. He said, just, just recognizing, bowing to the part of the living God that lives and breathes inside of me bows in reverence to the part of the living God that lives and breathes in you. I see it. And I treat you as that, as a precious child of God, not as a thing. And this reverence for each other, I believe, will lead to reverence for God, reverence for all kinds of strange others, even reverence for ourselves and for the planet. And in the meantime, it has so much power to transform all of our relationships. Yeah? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that um, we just need help with the way we relate to one another. And um, that we're just filled with so much, I don't even know, fear, shame, just with a deep down sense that we know how broken we are and we don't want to have to see it and deal with it all the time. And so we avoid the ways that other people reflect that back to us. So I pray that you would make us courageous and strong to move into the world with our namaste. that you would shore us up and hold us tight, help us to see ourselves truly and accurately without shame or fear that we'll be kicked out of the community. And I pray that this little church would take it seriously and that we would practice this for each other and for homeless members and the immigrants around us. And, and at least for us, at least so, so far as our community is concerned, that, that we would hold deep reverence for all other human beings. And this would ripple out and impact the world. That's our prayer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand now.
and we're going to receive communion. The way that we do this is just come forward row by row. The ushers will dismiss us, and you'll, you'll be offered this little um, packet of, of the juice and, and the bread. It's our COVID solution. And um, they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, um, I will remember or say amen, however you like to um, reply. We do this because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it. And um, when he had passed it out, he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he did the same thing with the cup. And they all shared in this one common cup. And he said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Um, and then he said, do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you get together, you know, eat, feast on my body, drink my blood, take my life into your life is what he was saying. Become made of the stuff I'm made of and then head out into the world and bear witness to, to the coming of God and the restoration of all things. And so this is, this is why we do this when we gather. We're trying to receive Christ again, all of us and be made of the stuff he's made of. Let's um, ask a blessing on the table. Lord, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?